Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastoral interns at North Sub this year. And this morning, I have the privilege to open the Word of God with you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us right now as we hear from your Word. I pray that you would use the Word of God to transform our hearts and help us to worship you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Do you know that guy who always seems to tell jokes that cross the line? The kind of joke where you're not sure if you should laugh or just shake your head? I used to be that guy. In the summer of 2014, I spent 10 weeks on a summer mission trip in South Carolina with crew. On this trip, I was tasked with leading a Bible study of four guys. You can see a young 19-year-old Josh Loomis on the left here with my Bible study. Now, at this point, I had been following Jesus for a while now, and I knew many of the commands in Scripture. But I also had a reputation for not really having a filter. I had a reputation for throwing in an off-color joke here and there. You see, I thought myself to be pretty quick-witted. I thought that this trait of mine made me someone fun to be around, lighten up the atmosphere. So I thought it was no big deal. Throughout the summer, I continued to lead my Bible study, and I continued to occasionally tell an off-color joke, something that crossed the line, often sexual in nature, and I thought it was no big deal. However, about three-fourths of the way through the summer, one of the guys in my Bible study, Brian, being filled with the Holy Spirit, approached me in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I can still picture where we were on the beach. And he said, gently and with love, Josh, I have a really hard time respecting you because of some of the jokes that you tell. Paul says in the letter to the Ephesians, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. You're not living your life according to that scripture. Oof. My heart sank when he said that to me. But I knew that he was right. You see, I was familiar with the passage in Ephesians that says, no unwholesome talk should come out of your mouth. I knew that intellectually, but I was not living my life according to that scripture. The Bible calls us to not only know God's word, but also to live our lives in accordance with scripture. In our passage today, Jesus addresses a church whose actions were not always aligned with what was in accordance to Scripture. Just as I had given in to something that was not honoring to the Lord, members of the church have engaged in activity that are out of line with what God's teaching. And just as Brian rebuked me for my unwholesome talk, Jesus rebukes them. Will you turn with me to Revelation 2:18 if you haven't already? Similar to the other letters that we've been going through, we're going to look at four aspects today of the letter to Thyatira. We're first going to look at who's writing, 
we're going to look at what's good in the church, we're going to look at what's bad, and then we're going to look at what must be done. The letter to Thyatira is the fourth of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. It's the longest letter, and it sits at the center of this pattern of the letters. The first and the seventh are unhealthy and receive rebukes. The second and the sixth are healthy and receive no rebuke. And then the middle three all are rebuked for something that's unhealthy. Thyatira is the middle of these three letters. And the letter to Thyatira holds an important message that contributes to the book of Revelation as a whole. This message is as important for our church today as it was for the first century church of Thyatira. Now, as we dive into the diagnosis of Thyatira, it's important to know some background information about the city. Like the other churches that are written to in, these, in chapters 2 and 3, Thyatira is in modern-day Turkey. This is uh, a proposed route that Dr. Lau shared a number of weeks ago. And Thyatira is in the middle here. Thyatira was positioned between the port cities in Asia Minor and the cities deeper within. It was on a trade route throughout the cities. Thyatira, politically and culturally, was really diverse, which caused them to be marginalized in those areas. Thyatira found most of their identity in their economic status, in their great trade capacity with the rest of the country. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Luke meet a woman in Philippi, and they, she comes to faith. Her name is Lydia, and she is in the textiles industry. She sells purple dye, which was the most expensive color, color dye in the ancient world. Lydia is from Thyatira. The way to get political power in Thyatira was through economic means. In the city, scholars believe that there were many trade unions or trade guilds that would have been the way to make a name for yourself. The norm for these trade unions was to participate in worship of other gods, which often included illicit sex and offering to food idols. The pressure to conform to these ways of living would have been very strong for people who wanted to make a decent wage in Thyatira. This information can help give us insight into what might be going on in the church in this city. We're given further insight by the description of Jesus who's writing to the church. Verse 18 says, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. Jesus is referred to here as the Son of God. In fact, this is the only place in Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. At the outset of the letter, there's a, re there's a reminder to the church in Thyatira that although Caesar, the ruler of Rome, was considered to be a son of the gods, they are hearing from the Son of God, Jesus Christ. They're also told that his eyes are like a fiery flame and his feet are like fine bronze. The true Son of God is standing firmly, rooted in place, with feet 
made of metal, which to the prominent metalworking city of Thyatira would have been an image that they are very familiar with. And his eyes are able to discern the hearts of the individuals who are being written to with fiery flame. Jesus knows that there is a breakdown of following the Lord in Thyatira. And this picture of Jesus reminds them that the true Son of God sees all things and is rooted firmly in the faith. Now, before Jesus addresses what is unhealthy in the church, he commends them for something they're doing well. Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first. He commends them for the ways that they're serving, the ways that they're loving. He says that they were good when they started, and they've gotten even better. Even better at serving and loving. Now, if we think about when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22? We hear two answers from him. He says, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. It seems that the church in Thyatira is excelling in the second command. They are loving their neighbor well. They're reaching out. They're serving the community. Three weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they were not tolerating false teachings. They were standing firmly in the faith. However, Jesus criticized them for losing their first love. As Pastor Tim shared, they had been failing to be a light in their community. They had failed to remember their missional uh, attitude towards their community. The church in Thyatira is the opposite, the inverse of the church in Ephesus here. They are doing well. They are serving their community. They're being a light. But sometimes, in an effort to more effectively reach those around us, churches compromise on their teachings. They lower their standard of what it means to follow God's word. The church in Thyatira has lowered their standard of what is tolerated and permitted in their church. In their attempt to follow the second command, of loving their neighbor well, they have failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. Which brings us to what they're doing well. Or, sorry, which brings us to what they're not doing well. Verses 20 and 21 says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, if we look at the text from last week versus the text from this week, we see some similarities. They're both rebuked for eating meat, sacrificed to idols, and committing sexual immorality. Both of them have an Old Testament story that is addressed or referred to. In Pergamum, we have eat meeting sacrifice to idols listed first and sexual immorality afterwards. Thyatira, we have sexual immorality first 
and meat sacrificed to idols afterwards. The primary issue in Pergamum was that they were committing idolatry and eating meat sacrificed to idols. In Thyatira, the primary sin concern is that they are committing sexual immorality. Now, scholars disagree as to what exactly is happening in the church of Thyatira here. Some scholars say that the sexual immorality here refers broadly to idolatry. As many times throughout Scripture, when the Israelites turn away from God, it's described as adultery. There are other scholars who believe that there was a prophetess in the church here that was prophesying that it was permissible for the church to be engaging in sexual sin. Now, because of the references to Jezebel and the strong language of of committing adultery here and sexual immorality, I believe that there was some sort of perverse sexual ethic being taught by this prophetess. However, let us not think that this rebuke applies only to sexual sin. For the Bible calls us to align our lives with God's teachings in all areas of our life. But in this instance, we are going to dive into the realities of sexual sin this morning. So just want to allow ourselves to feel a little uncomfortable, but also hear what God has to say about sexual sin. Sexual sin was rampant in the Roman Empire. It was not unusual to engage in adulterous relationships, to sleep with slaves, male or female, it didn't matter. As one second century historian writes, comparing the Romans to the Christians, he says, the Romans hold on to their money and they share their wives. The Christian shares their money and holds on to their wife. The Christian sexual ethic was radical in the Roman Empire. Sexual sin is rampant today, in our day and age. The normalization of pornography, the flippancy of of casual hookups with others. The Christian sexual ethic was as radical back in the day as it is today. Something else to be said about sexual sin. I think it's true that sexual sin can often stay hidden in our lives. Sexual sin also has a unique ability to disqualify church leaders and harm the reputation of the church. In the Bible, King David, a man who's described as being after God's own heart, grievously sins against the Lord, starting by him lusting after Bathsheba and going as far as him committing murder in order to cover up his sin. I'm sure all of us here can think of a prominent figure in just the last two years whose reputation has been tarnished or hurt the image of the church because they were caught in adultery or some other sort of sexual sin. One of the convincing factors for me is the mention of Jezebel. Now, Who is Jezebel? For that, we have to go to the Old Testament and look at who Jezebel was and how her influence led the nation of Israel into great sin. Now, at the offset, I want to clarify. Jezebel often has a connotation 
of this promiscuous, seductive woman who's leading God's people away from what the Lord has commanded. But it can be, it can be our temptation to place all of the blame on Jezebel or just women in general for leading men into sexual temptation against what the Lord has for us. However, the story of Ahab and Jezebel doesn't really play out like that. As we read in 1 Kings 16, 30 and 31, But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. Ahab is credited as doing more evil than all who were before him in the eyes of the Lord. He not only follows the sin of Jeroboam, but he goes one step further and marries Jezebel. And it's important that she is listed as being the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. You see, as the king of Israel, Ahab had a responsibility to lead the people of Israel, to set an example for them spiritually. Not only does he live a sinful life, but he goes one step further to break the command for God's people in Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. When talking about the surrounding nations, God instructs them, you must not intermarry with them. You must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And God tells why. Because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Ahab disregards this command. He marries Jezebel from the surrounding nation. And what happens? Israel descends into Baal worship. And who was, God, who was Baal the god of? Baal was the god of fertility, the god of sex. Most scholars believe that worship of Baal included temple prostitution, an overt perversion of God's design for sexuality, taking the act of sex, which is worshipful to the Lord, in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, and cheapening it, making available male and female prostitutes for anyone who wanted to worship Baal. Now, we also don't want to let Jezebel off the hook. She is an evil woman. After she marries King Ahab, she introduces Baal worship to Israel. She also orchestrates the murder of an Israelite in order to take his vineyard. And she also tries to hunt and kill Elijah as God's prophet. In our passage in Revelation, the prophetess is referred to as Jezebel. Now, this is unlikely that this is her real name, but instead, she's personified as the Old Testament figure Jezebel to indicate that she is leading God's people away from what the Lord has commanded. The text says she calls herself a prophetess. So it seems as if she's claiming to have heard from the Lord that it's all right to stray from God's sexual ethic. Possibly that engaging in the activities promoted by the trade guilds in town was all right. Whatever is happening, it's a perversion of God's instruction on sexuality. Verse 20 says that the church has tolerated this woman Jezebel. Verse 21 
says that she has been given time to repent. There are members of the church who know that her teachings do not align with God's word. They've confronted her, asking her to repent, but she has refused. The church is exercising their responsibility to test what is taught in the church. The Apostle John, who also wrote Revelation, says in 1 John 4.1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Her teachings have been discerned to be that of a false prophet, but they've permitted her to stay a part of the church. As Pastor Tim frequently says, what leaders permit, they promote. So even though some in the church might not agree with what she's saying, they've permitted her to stay and not be removed from the church. She's been given to time to repent. It is time for her to be removed from any position or authority that she has in the church. So there's some division here in the church. There are some who are following this woman's teachings, some who aren't. Possibly, I don't know, in an effort to reach out to effectively love their neighbor well, to reach out to their community, these teachings have been allowed in the church. There are many churches in our day and age who have submitted to teachings on sexual ethics that are more widely accepted, that are not quite as old-fashioned or embarrassing to have in 2022, but whose views do not represent God's view. We want to love our neighbor well, but we're also called to hold fast to God's teachings. So here's the diagnosis. They're good at loving their neighbor well, but they're not so good at holding fast to sound doctrine. With every good diagnosis comes a treatment plan, action steps to remedy the problems. Jesus tells them what should be done. He instructs the church in verses 22 to 29. Let's read. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to listen hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus tells the church what will become of those that are following this woman. He says he'll throw her into a sickbed. He'll throw her into a great tribulation unless they repent of her works. If they don't repent, Jesus is going to strike their children dead. And all the churches will know that he is the one who searches mind and heart. He will give to each of them according to your works. 
Now, up to this point in this passage, when the word you has been there, Jesus is referring to the church in Thyatira, the singular you. However, starting in verse 23 here, the you is plural. Jesus is now talking to every member of the church in Thyatira individually. I will give to each of you according to your works. Each person in the church is going to receive what is coming for them. But each of them also has an opportunity to repent. So even though some in the church are tolerating false teachings, they're given an opportunity to repent. Church, we serve a God who is rich in mercy and slow to anger. If your life doesn't reflect God's sexual ethic right now, if you're in the midst of an affair or you're viewing pornography, you have an opportunity to repent. Even if your sin is hidden right now from your spouse or from your brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame, searches minds and hearts. He knows the depths of your sin, and yet he loves you. He knew the depths of your sin as he willingly faced the cross. Let us not be found among those who are struck dead because we're children of a false prophet. Let us repent of all spiritual idolatry in our lives and turn and fix our eyes on Jesus. Those false idols are a pale imitation of what the Lord wants us to have. Verse 24 says that they're the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say. Church, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. The adversary. He takes the truths of the created order, the truths of Scripture, and twists it into something that promises us fulfillment, but always falls short. Satan uses the same lies he used to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden on us in order to tempt us out of sound doctrine. I want to take a look at Genesis 3 and see how Jesus, or, sorry, see how Satan tempts Eve. The serpent was the most cunning of all wild animals. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that marriage is just between a man and a woman? That has to be a translation error. God can't believe that. Did God really say that just lusting after a woman in your heart is committing adultery? That's too extreme. As long as you're not acting on it, it's fine. Temptation number one. Eve responds, he did say, we must not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Temptation number two. No, you won't die. In fact, you're going to be like God. Your eyes will be opened 
God's not trying to protect you. He's holding out on you. God doesn't reserve sex for marriage to protect you. He's preventing you from experiencing the truest pleasures of the world. Sex should be about you and what you want. These are lies that Satan uses to get us to question God. The commands in Scripture about God's sexual ethic have been given to protect us and to help us to flourish. Some in the church of Thyatira have not given in to these false teachings. They've held fast to the truth that God has provided to them. And Jesus' word for these people, he's putting no other burden on them. Only hold on to what you have until I come. And they have the word of God. The command for those who have held to sound doctrine is to continue to hold fast. Don't waver. Don't give in. Until Jesus returns, the, ta- the church is tasked with defending and upholding God's word. Let us not stray or compromise when it comes to doctrine. For those who conquer and who keep my works to the end, I will give them authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. This is a quotation of Psalm chapter 2, where the psalmist paints this image of the nations raging against God and his people. Here's the quotation in verse 9. The book of Revelation paints this picture of this war that's going on in the spiritual realm. The evil spirits that are reigning our world are at war with God and his saints, trying to bring him down. And at the middle of the seven letters, we're given this quotation of Psalm 2 to bring us back to this reality that the nations rage against God. We feel this, right? 2,000 years later, and people are still attacking the Bible, attacking the church, trying to bring it down. And as the nations rage, does God tremble in fear? No. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. He says, I have installed my king on Zion. And he will say to that king, you are my son. The one place in Revelation where Jesus is called the Son of God, I believe, is to remind us that the Son who is installed on Zion is Jesus. And although the nations rage in our time, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. ways of the world, the sexual ethic of the day. All of that is a pale imitation to what God offers us. As the church, Christ's bride, we're offered an opportunity to join 
Jesus in the ruling of the nations. In this life, we're offered an opportunity to fully live out the ways of the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. This is why we must endure until Jesus comes. Which brings us to our big idea for the day. Let us hold on to the word of God until Jesus returns. For scripture offers us something better than what the world can offer us. False teachers were not unique to the first century. And the need for solid doctrine is as necessary in our day and age than it was in first century Turkey. Let anyone who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. As we conclude, I want to end with three exhortations. Firstly, although the church in Thyatira had theological issues and they had division in their church, Jesus commends them for the way that they're serving, for their works and their love. Let us not forget that we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourself, to be a light to our community, and to share the good news of the gospel with those who do not yet know. Let us be a church who is a light to our community. Secondly, the church in Thyatira was not carrying out their duties in removing false teachings from the church. As a church and as individuals, we are called to hold one another accountable. Let us be a people who are willing to have uncomfortable conversations with those that we love in order to align them to God's word. My friend Brian courageously pointed out an area in my life which did not align with scripture. He was wise about when he approached me and he did it out of love, but he still confronted me. And by the grace of God, I am no longer the guy who tells jokes that cross the line. Because of my brother, who pointed out an area that was harming my witness. Let us be a church that sharpens one another. Finally, as a church and as individuals, we must care about living in accordance with God's word. With heart, soul, and mind, let us cherish God's commands to his people. Let us be a people who know the word of God and what it demands of us. And let us be a people of repentance. We will never be free from sin in this life. There will always be an area in which we are failing to live out what God requires of us. But let us be a people who are willing, who are willing to repent of our sin. Brother and sister, if you've been made aware of an area in your life that does not align with God's ways, tell someone you know about it this week. Especially if you're caught in sexual sin right now. Do not hide your sin from your brothers and sisters. Satan loves nothing more than for us to try to battle our sin on our own. Bring it before the Lord. And bring it to a trusted brother and sister who can walk alongside you in this journey. Jesus, the Son of God, knows your heart and mind. He calls us to hold fast to what we've been given in Scripture. The nations rage in vain against God and his holy people. But for those who repent, we're offered to rule alongside Jesus. Let us hold fast 
until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we want to be a people of repentance. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your word. I pray that we would be able to examine our lives, that we wouldn't be flippant about our sin. We would strive towards what you demand of us by the power of Jesus Christ who lives within us. Not by our own strength, but by submitting to you, Lord. I pray that you would sanctify us and you would help us to hold fast until the day that Jesus returns. Amen.